A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, episode 53, The Leechman's Son. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Westeros, where we'll be diving deep into the prologue of A Storm of Swords. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today is Yogboy. Yeah, hi! This prologue, revolving around the POV of Chet, is set up in earlier books. So we'll begin by analysing Chet's early appearances, evaluating what can be gleaned about his role in the story going into his prologue. We'll also focus on his early life, where much can be learned about his character. Then we'll have a full walkthrough of the chapter itself, which takes place on the Fist of the First Men. Expect a thorough look at the prologue with its mysteries, themes and plot points given close inspection. Next, we'll take a detour from the story of Chet himself and examine the surroundings. The Fist of the First Men is an historic fortification north of the Wall, and we'll be discussing this setting. And from there, we'll segue back to the climactic events of the chapter. And finally, we'll consider the aftermath of Chet's prologue, tracking him and his band of mutineers beyond the chapter, and considering Chet's actions with a broader lens. And Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. And so, before we begin, we want to give thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Paleless Milk Glass patrons, Multude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Weirgarian, and Sister Winter. Many thanks to you all, and if you are interested in becoming a patron, head over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to check out our campaign, where our patrons have access to exclusive episodes, early ad-free access to regular episodes, and receive customizable shout-outs, among other perks. Your support helps us keep Radio Westeros going during this long night. And a huge thank you to all our patrons, old and new, and just a note to let you know that we've recently upgraded and improved several of the Patreon tiers, and also added a new $5 per episode tier, which gives three-day early access, among other things, for anyone thinking of joining us. Be sure to check that out on Patreon.com. And now, it's time to get started with the story of Chet, the Leechman's son. Chet had a wen on his neck the size of a pigeon's egg and a face red with boils and pimples. Perhaps that was why he always seemed so angry. It was Chet who answered John's knock. I need to speak to Maester Eamon, John told him. 
The maester is abed, and so should you be. Come back on the morrow, and maybe he'll see you. He began to shut the door. John jammed it open with his boot. I need to speak to him now. The morning will be too late. The Chet prologue in A Storm of Swords is often cited as being the weakest of the five prologues. However, what could be lost in a left-to-right reading of the books is that Chet's story is part of a sequence, his arc peppered over three books. With Will, Cresson and Pate, the reader had no prior knowledge of the character, George had a clean slate to build a short story upon. But with Varamir and Chet, the characters had previously been introduced and established, and so we can look to their early appearances for groundwork that prefigures their prologues. As a result, we believe the Chet chapter should be considered as part of a sequence rather than a standalone chapter. And so, only by viewing through a wider lens, Chet's chapter is improved when consumed alongside pertinent parts of A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. The aftermath of the chapter is also part of the sequence, and although the focus on Chet is lost, his influence and the events of his prologue echo through the saga far beyond the fight at the Fist of the First Men. And to add further to the sense of sequence, the prologue also takes advantage of the POV structure to provide us with some backstory, which interweaves with the prologue's immediate events. Today, for our analysis of Chet, we're going to make Sequence King, unravel his story, and present it chronologically. At the least, this format will be an original way to re-experience the prologue, but it also might serve to shine a new light on Chet's story and convey hidden depth. So, let's begin with Chet's early story, his family background, and the events which led to him being initiated into the Night's Watch Brotherhood. In the prologue, we learn that Chet hails from a place called Hagsmire in the Riverlands, and later, midway through A Storm of Swords in Catlin V, we have a chapter that takes place in Hagsmire as Rob's army marches through the place en route to the Twins. As they try to make their way to the Twins through a Riverlands saturated by autumn rains, Catlin says this, If we cannot cross the Blue Fork, we'll have to go around it, through Seven Streams and Hagsmire. Bogs and bad roads, or none at all, warned Edmure. The going will be slow, but we'll get there, I suppose. Days then pass, and when they eventually maneuver through Hagsmire, the boggy landscape is described thusly. Hagsmire, where glistening green pools waited to swallow the unwary and the soft ground sucked at the hooves of their horses like a hungry babe at its mother's breast. So Hagsmire really does live up to its name, a place of bogs and swamps, which we can guess doesn't benefit from the river resources, trade and industries as other parts of the Riverlands might. Transportation is difficult, especially in times of rain, and there just doesn't seem to be much going on. We can therefore assert it might be a rather grim place to grow up in, with a dearth of coin and opportunity. In the chat prologue, we learned that he had, quote, no trade to speak of living in Hagsmire. This quote draws a direct line between Chet's lack of skills and the poverty of his circumstances and surroundings. 
However detestable his later ambition to become a sort of craster number two, a lord with a keep as he sees it, this does show that he had a burning ambition to be someone of importance, and such is his propensity to daydream that he will even wonder if he could be king one day. And so we can imagine the frustration he must have felt to have been raised in a place with no opportunities. And this, we think, speaks to the seething anger and bitterness that the young man continuously displays. We think it's fair to say that most young men in Chet's situation would hope to learn a trade from their father to set them on their way. However, we learn this. His father had spent his life grubbing in other men's fields and collecting leeches. He'd strip down bare but for a thick leather clout and go wading in the murky waters. When he climbed out, he'd be covered from nipple to ankle. Sometimes he made Chet help pull the leeches off. One had attached itself to his palm once and he'd smashed it against a wall in revulsion. His father beat him bloody for that. The maesters bought the leeches at twelve for a penny. So Chet's father seems not to have owned his own fields, and he's very likely poor and unskilled, and so he uses his own body as a leech magnet. You can sense Chet's disdain as he talks of his father grubbing in other men's fields. While this might have seemed like honest work for his father, for the more ambitious Chet, and perhaps for the reader too, this practice seems fairly revolting, making a living by allowing oneself to be covered in blood-sucking parasites. Perhaps, then, we can give Chet a pass for finding the process disgusting. When Chet is suckered by a leech and smashes it to death, we can see this not only as a repulsion to leeches, but as a fundamental rejection of the leechman lifestyle of his father. It also highlights the physical abuse. His father beat him bloody for wasting a leech worth a mere twelfth of a penny, another reason for his burning anger and hatred. A little tidbit of information that George threw in at the end of the quote that maesters bought the leeches might tell us that although cheap, leeches are only found in certain places in Westeros. If Chet were ever to leave Hagsmire, he would do so without literacy, skills or the ability to do the one thing that his father taught him. Chet's status as a thoroughly unskilled individual affects him negatively when he's with the Night's Watch, driving his story into further conflict. We hear of this leech's background in Chet's prologue, and then briefly get to see what a boggy mess Hagsmire is midway through the same book, helping us understand why Chet is the way he is. When he thinks... If he never saw Hagsmire again, it would be too bloody soon. We can kind of sympathise with him in certain regards, for he has no sense of home, and his opinion of his former place of residence also helps to fuel ambitions to make it somewhere else rather than return. All of this backstory exposed so far begins to coalesce into the fabric of his motivation to inspire a Night's Watch mutiny and take over at Craster's. And soon we get yet more backstory as we learn why he was forced to join the Night's Watch. When we first see him in A Game of Thrones, Chet is described as having a wen on his neck the size of a pigeon's egg and a face red with boils and pimples. 
Perhaps that was why he always seemed so angry. These two characteristics, the unattractive boils and his anger, work together. We imagine his pimply face red with anger at the smallest slight. And these features seem to have been particularly bothersome in his youth, at an age where he probably hoped to impress the young ladies of Hagsmeyer, Chet must have been something of a joke. It says, When he'd been younger, the village girls took one look at his face, with its boils and its when, and turned away sickened. It seems Chet felt a high degree of humiliation by the sexual rejection he encountered. His nasty boils might have caused the rejection that made him angry, and perhaps it's implied that his anger, in turn, worsened his boils. This cycle of anger is a good summary of his character, an endless circle of frustration that made him a ticking human time bomb. Unfortunately, Chet's seething animosity soon manifested in the murder of a local girl, no doubt in revenge for all those other girls who had spurned him. Here's the passage. The worst was that slattern, Bessa. She'd spread her legs for every boy in Hagsmire, so he figured, why not him too? He even spent a morning picking wildflowers when he heard she liked them, but she just laughed in his face and told him she'd crawl in a bed with his father's leeches before she'd crawl in one with him. She stopped laughing when he put his knife in her. That was sweet, the look on her face, so he pulled the knife out and put it in her again. The way Chet seems to justify cold-blooded murder with sexual rejection tells us everything we need to know about his outlook on the opposite sex. He thinks of his string of rejections as if he had a divine right to sleep with those girls that was being withheld, a psychopath who believed Bessa owed him her body because she had a history of promiscuity and he picked flowers for her. We know nothing of Chet's mother, so it's difficult to analyse exactly why he thought this way of the opposite sex, but we can say with surety that he was a character incapable of controlling his rage, and that ultimately he threw his life away because a girl laughed at him. The fact that he thinks to pay for his one sweet moment they took his whole life underlines what a self-centred coward he truly is. There will not be one drop of remorse or sympathy for his victim. On the contrary, he still believes his murder of a defenceless and innocent girl was sweet. This is the outlook of a man whose heart is devoid of love or decency of any sort. He would probably blame his romantic misfortunes on his when and his boils, but inside is where Chet's ugliness truly lies. Given his feelings of sexual inadequacy and his unequivocal lack of respect for women, when we learn of Chet's burning ambition to subject Craster's wives stroke daughters to a further and unending cycle of control and rape, sadly, it's not much of a surprise. And following the murder of Bessa, Chet ran, but being so unskilled he couldn't even make it as a criminal, he was soon apprehended. It says, When they caught him down near Seven Streams, old Lord Walder Frey hadn't even bothered to come himself to do the judging. He'd sent one of his bastards, that Walder Rivers, and the next thing Chet had known, he was walking to the wall with that foul-smelling black devil urine. 
Notice in that quote that the quintessential psychopath Chet remains annoyed four years after the event that Walder Frey didn't even bother to judge him in person, sending his bastard Walder Rivers to do his bidding. True to the mould of the psychopath, Chet's grandiose sense of self-worth will simply not allow him to let go of any perceived slight against his character. Instead, he harbours resentment and dwells upon it in an endless simmer. Walder Frey himself would be proud. And so Joran marched Chet back to Castle Black. It's notable that Chet describes Joran as a foul-smelling black devil. So far, it's well established that Chet is a woman-hater, but in his thoughts about everyone else, from his father to Walder Rivers to his fellow black brothers, we see he has a distaste for just about everyone he encounters. We don't know much about Chet's early days at the Night's Watch, but we can guess that for a volatile misanthrope such as him, life probably wasn't easy. And initially, he seems to have had something of a lucky break. Chet was assigned as a steward to Maester Eamon. We've seen since the first prologue what dangerous tasks some Night's Watch members carry out. So Chet landing this role was the definition of cushy. He remained at that post for four years in relative comfort, even frequenting the brothel at Molestown and finally losing his virginity there. As Eamon's steward, he would have found respite from the hustle and bustle of brotherhood while tending to the ravens and the ageing Maester Eamon himself. These duties were shared with Clydas and Chet seems to have been settled there. Now, the Night's Watch itself is worth considering before we dive into the events of Game of Thrones. The Watch is a military order tasked with defending the Wall, the northern border of the Seven Kingdoms, which dates back thousands of years to the Dawn Age. However, once a noble calling fit for brave men and knights of sound reputation, the Night's Watch has gradually fallen into shabby disrepair as an institution. As we see with Chet himself, The Order is now populated with criminals serving at the Wall for life as punishment for various crimes. This conversation between Jon and Tyrion in A Game of Thrones highlights the current reality of taking the Black. And your father, he must have had good reasons for packing you off to the Night's Watch. Stop it, Jon Snow said, his face dark with anger. The Night's Watch is a noble calling. Tyrion laughed. You're too smart to believe that. The Night's Watch is a midden heap for all the misfits of the realm. I've seen you looking at Yorin and his boys. Those are your new brothers, Jon Snow. How do you like them? Sullen peasants, debtors, poachers, rapers, thieves, and bastards like you all wind up on the wall watching for grumpkins and snarks and all the other monsters your wet nurse warned you about. The good part is there are no grumpkins or snarks, so it's scarcely dangerous work. The bad part is you freeze your balls off. But since you're not allowed to breed anyway, I don't suppose that matters. Given the A Game of Thrones prologue's conclusion that the others are back and are armed and ready to take on the Night's Watch, those Black Brothers who once defeated them in the Battle for the Dawn, as recounted in the song The Night That Ended, it is then essential to the narrative for George to convey the current poor state of the institution – 
Doing so underlines just how vulnerable the wall is and therefore amplifies the danger the Seven Kingdoms is in, burying its head in the sand as the men of the Night's Watch struggle to man their castles and form a cohesive unit of defence. This lack of fortitude, coupled with the inability to remember their original purpose, weakens the kingdom's defences. The indiscipline of unfit recruits is another crack in their armour which provides the groundwork for the eventual mutiny at Craster's, where the Lord Commander Jor Mormont is unceremoniously murdered by his own man, Olo Lophand. And so, as such a central part of the Northern storyline, it was important for George to express the dangers of the Night's Watch recruiting the dregs of society, criminals beyond redemption, in lieu of noble and skilled men. One such criminal is Chet, who's given a point of view to convey that the Night's Watch has fallen over a tipping point, and in some quarters is not fit for purpose. Chet is emblematic of the weakness, ineptitude, and indiscipline that has taken root in the once-proud order, and that's why he's such an important minor and point-of-view character. But before thrusting the POV chapter onto this degenerate character, George carefully weaves him into the narrative of the first two books. Let's pick up in A Game of Thrones, where he is introduced. Stark bastard Jon Snow joins the Night's Watch with the traditional noble ideals and soon befriends Samuel Tarly, also highborn, who was effectively forced into the order by his father Randall, who despised his weak and bookish ways. Jon is martially trained and physically capable, where Sam is a bullied misfit, as he had been at home. However, John sees a hidden value in Samwell that others don't. The turning point for Sam and Chet is when John hatches a plan to raise his friend to a position in the Night's Watch that he is truly suited to. The epiphany moment is here in John 4. John found himself thinking of Samwell Tarly again on the ride back. By the time he reached the stables, He knew what he must do. By now, Chet had spent four years in relative comfort as Aemon's steward. The Night's Watch is comprised of rangers, builders, and stewards. To be a ranger, one is required to have good horse riding, tracking, or martial skills. Builders should be skilled masons, carpenters, miners, and woodsmen. And stewards need to be adept in animal care, cookery, maintenance, and so on. Going back to what we said about Chet's world of disadvantage growing up in Hagsmire, it seems that the young man brought with him no transferable skills whatsoever. It's also highly improbable that he was able to work well with others. When Chet reflects on his position being stolen by John and Sam, what he doesn't realize is that Eamon might have employed him as a personal steward, not because of his suitability, but because he would be absolutely useless anywhere else in the order. Eamon's recruitment of him was, in all likelihood, a merciful attempt to give him the chance to fit in somewhere. And with no literacy skills, it's improbable that Chet was excelling in his role as assistant to the wise and learned Maester Eamon. And so, little did Chet know that when he opened the door to Eamon's chambers late one night to Jon Snow, that his world was about to change. This quote we cited earlier is our first glimpse of Chet. 
Chet had a wen on his neck the size of a pigeon's egg, and a face red with boils and pimples. Perhaps that was why he always seemed so angry. The description conveys much about him. Chet then tries to turn Jon Snow away and shows some disgust when he persists with his request to talk to Aemon. The maester, however, is more patient, saying, The mystery of a midnight visitor is a welcome diversion. So tell me, Jon Snow, why have you come calling at this strange hour? Jon explains that Sam should be initiated into the Night's Watch as a steward, and that if he isn't, then his lack of martial skills will put him in danger. While John explains the predicament, it says that Chet's face darkened with each word. Mr. Angry can't hold his tongue for long and soon bursts out with, I've seen this fat boy in the common hall. He is a pig and a hopeless craven as well, if what you say is true. Eamon retorts by asking what Chet would do with Sam. Leave him where he is, Chet said. The wall is no place for the weak. Let him train until he is ready, no matter how many years it takes. Sir Alistair shall make a man of him, or kill him, as the gods will. John responds poetically with a defence of Sam, suggesting that the Night's Watch should recognise his skills as being different, yet still valuable. At this point, John is providing the perfect contrast with Chet. John, like Eamon, is patient, thoughtful and measured, whereas Chet is letting his inner rage and hatred come through. It might seem like John is talking Eamon round to his way of thinking, but perhaps Chet is unknowingly doing the same, his poor character helping Eamon along with his judgement. It's just that he's too stupid to see it. Chet is demonstrating his true colours, but does he think that wise Maester Aemon is as scornful as himself? And John concludes that the Night's Watch needs all sorts too. Why else have rangers and stewards and builders? Lord Randall couldn't make Sam a warrior, and Sir Alistair won't either. You can't hammer tin into iron no matter how hard you beat it, but that doesn't mean tin is useless. Why shouldn't Sam be a steward? Chet predictably replies with an angry scowl, launching a diatribe against the soft lordlings and giving off a nasty laugh as he insinuates that Samwell is too cowardly and unskilled to carry out the tasks of a steward. In light of what we've discussed today, this charge sounds rather rich coming from Chet. Perhaps he's projecting his own uselessness, a fact surely not lost on either John or Eamon. And it's now that John really unveils his plan. John glanced warily at Chet, standing beside the door, his boils red and angry. He could help you, he said quickly. He can do sums, and he knows how to read and write. I know Chet can't read, and Clytus has weak eyes. Sam read every book in his father's library. He'd be good with the ravens, too. Animals seemed to like him. Ghost took to him straight off. There's a lot he could do, besides fighting. The Night's Watch needs every man. Why kill one to no end? Make use of him instead. So John essentially points out that Samwell is better suited to Chet's job than he is. We think it's very important that Chet was there to see this happen. 
feeding into the mounting anger that will drive him to plan a mutiny. Imagine how Chet feels to have one highborn lord's son recommend another highborn lord's son to Chet's cushy job with their highborn boss. It's a wonder his boils didn't burst there and then. Whatever hang-ups Chet carries with him about being a leechman's son from Hagsmire are being exacerbated in this fateful moment, laying much groundwork for the events of his prologue. Although in reality he arguably talked himself out of his job as much as John did, we can say with surety that Chet must have felt a huge injustice was perpetrated against his person here. When Eamon says, Maester Lewin taught you well, Jon Snow, your mind is as deft as your blade, it would seem. His mind is already made up. The chapter ends, and it's taken just this short passage to ground Chet in the story, although we don't discover why he's such an angry young man until the Astorm of Swords prologue. Soon John's favor to Samwell gets its payoff when the new Night's Watch positions are announced. It says, Lord Steward Bowen Marsh rubbed his plump hands together. Samwell, you will assist Maester Eamon in the rookery and library. Chet is going to the kennels to help with the hounds. Could Chet find happiness with the hounds? Well, we soon see him cursing them for curs, and we get the sense that Chet is as unfriendly to dogs as he is with people. And as Samwell tries to unravel the strange case of the dead rangers, Chet shouts, He soils his small clothes at the sight of blood. This joke about Sam not being able to control himself is repeated further on in Chet's story and should be remembered when we arrive at his prologue. For now, it seems clear that Chet resents Sam for taking his job and may have some vendetta against him. What begins with a joke to humiliate Tarly in front of the rangers will one day snowball into a plan to murder his fellow black brother. Later in the same passage, we get this. The rangers exchanged glances. They could see it was true, every man of them. Mormont frowned, glancing from the corpses to the dogs. Chet, bring the hounds closer. Chet tried, cursing, yanking on the leashes, giving one animal a lick of his boot. Most of the dogs just whimpered and planted their feet. He tried dragging one. The bitch resisted, growling and squirming as if to escape her collar. She finally lunged at him. Chet dropped the leash and stumbled backward. The dog leapt over him and bounded off into the trees. Although the circumstances are unusual, with the hounds sensing the undead, it's another example of Chet's dissatisfaction with his new vocation, his willingness to abuse the hounds, and his inability to control them. How small he must feel, how humiliated to fail in front of the rangers, the lord commander, and both John and Sam. And that's the last we hear of him in A Game of Thrones. And if this seething character with his cyst and his boils wasn't memorable enough, George reintroduces him in A Clash of Kings exactly where he left off. Chet is tasked with managing the hounds on the Great Ranging up north, and at White Tree we get this. Two of the hounds were sniffing around the door as they re-emerged. Other dogs ranged through the village. 
Chet was cursing them loudly, his voice thick with the anger he never seemed to put aside. The light filtering through the red leaves of the weirwood made the boils on his face look even more inflamed than usual. When he saw John, his eyes narrowed. There was no love lost between them. So at this passage in A Clash of Kings, we're reminded of Chet, his distinctive red boils, his unceasing animosity, and his hatred of those lordlings who, as he sees it, removed him from an easier life. The reader can now start to wonder if Chet will become a significant villain going forward. After all, by now, we love both John and Sam, and No Love Lost hints that Chet could pose some kind of threat. This adds an element of tension to the ranging from within the Night's Watch, and later it says, Chet blamed John for the loss of his comfortable position with Maester Aemon, and not without justice. If he had not gone to Aemon about Sam Tarly, Chet would still be tending an old blind man instead of a pack of ill-tempered hunting hounds. So Chet believes he would still be at the wall instead of on a cold and dangerous mission if it weren't for Sam. Given Sam was chosen to participate on the same ranging anyway, one of two things is happening. Either Chet is deluding himself to the reality that he would be ranging regardless of his reassignment, or acknowledging that given his illiteracy, he really wouldn't have been chosen because he's unfit for purpose. Nevertheless, the important takeaway is that he's ultimately blaming John and Sam for his inclusion on the ranging in his typically self-centred way. And at Craster's, we see the nucleus of Chet's eventual designs to cause a mutiny, murder Craster, and take over where he left off, taking control of the abused women who are all related. But in order to achieve this despicable dream, he needs allies, and this is where the discussion about having too many unsavory characters in the Night's Watch comes into play. When Craster's daughter Gilly encounters Ghost, we get the following scene. Don't you believe him, girl, called out Lark the Sisterman, a ranger mean as a cur. That's Lord Snow himself. Bastard of Winterfell and brother to kings, mocked Chet, who'd left his hounds to see what the commotion was about. That wolf's looking at you hungry, girl, Lark said. Might be it fancies that tender bit in your belly. So we can see that Chet and Lark the Sisterman are striking up a rapport. Lark being immediately described as mean as a cur, coupled with the way he treats women, conveys his offensive nature. When you put bad people together, away from the watchful eye of the community at Castle Black, bad things will happen. The groundwork for a mutiny is being laid, and soon John is verbally sparring with both men, a contrast of the noble and dishonourable as John tries to protect the girl from their meanness. He's afraid of you, Chet, says Lark, as John diffuses the situation. But later, we get a hint that the friendship between Chet and Lark has already bloomed into a dangerous partnership. John overhears five or six men muttering, Chet and Lark among them, and tries to listen in. It's an old man's folly, this ranging, he heard. We'll find nothing but our graves in them mountains. There's giants in the frost fangs, and wargs, and worse things, said Lark the sisterman. I'll not be going there, I promise you. The old bear's not like to give you a choice. Might be we won't give him one, said Chet. 
The dogs interrupt before the plotting is elaborated upon, but we sense that these two have formed a treacherous alliance with several other black brothers, and at the very least might be plotting to abscond from the reach of the Night's Watch. John realizes that this was a conversation he wasn't supposed to hear, yet he doesn't go directly to Mormont because he believes it to be the idle chatter of scared men, cold and hungry, and that his brothers would not go any further than this empty talk. As Ned did in King's Landing, John is making the mistake of giving too much credit to his enemies, and this passage is a clever way to convey the plotting, further prefiguring the events of the next novel. The setup is now complete. And this is the last we hear of Chet before his prologue. The day was gray and bitter cold, and the dogs would not take the scent. The big black bitch had taken one sniff at the bear's tracks, backed off, and skulked back to the pack with her tail between her legs. The dogs huddled together miserably on the riverbank as the wind snapped at them. Chet felt it, too, biting through his layers of black wool and boiled leather. The prologue POVs of the first two novels of A Song of Ice and Fire centred around decent individuals. Will and Maester Cresson were both sympathetic, and when they were in danger, we really felt for them. However, a few lines into the Storm of Swords prologue, we realised that we're in Chet's head, and that this chapter will be the study of an unsavoury character one who has already been revealed as a bully and overheard discussing a mutiny. Given the fates of Will and Cresson, how are we going to feel when Chet is in danger? First off, we get a description of the cold as a pack of dogs fail to take the scent of a bear. This might not seem like an intriguing opening gambit, but with further contemplation, we can see the chapter's first mystery, a hook to tempt us to read on. And the mystery is this. Why are Chet's dogs failing to take the bear's scent? Perhaps something seems off from the first sentence. It then says, it was too bloody cold for man or beast, but here they were. Is this just a bad day north of the wall, or is something else afoot? Recalling Will's introductory prologue, when another band of Black Brothers felt a deathly cold, we might start to wonder where the cold biting through Chet's garments is coming from. For the second time, we sense George is leaving something unsaid. Chet's boils are remarked upon an identification device just in case we'd forgotten who he was. And we are reminded of his belief that he would be safe and warm inside Eamon's chambers if it were not for John and Sam, setting the scene for further tensions. We learn Chet is tracking the bear for food, and with him are Lark the Sisterman and Small Paul. The latter seems immediately more honourable than the others, warning that they need to persevere and not come back empty-handed, or else the Lord Commander wouldn't like it. Meanwhile, Chet is thinking of butchering the dogs for meat instead, highlighting how ill-conceived and short-sighted his schemes really are. It's then that Chet reveals his master plan of murdering Mormont before daybreak. His pal Lark agrees, saying, Bugger that old bear, too. Small Paul, a big man with frozen snot across his face, blinks his eyes, almost as if he'd forgotten what he knew. Chet thinks, Paul was stupid enough to forget most anything. 
This tells us a lot about Chet. He even seems to hate his friends and accomplices and takes any opportunity to look down on them. But it also shines a light on Paul, a character new to the text, and he responds, Why do we have to kill the old bear? Why don't we just go off and let him be? It seems from the outset that Paul's rather simple, has a good heart, and yet he's fallen in with the wrong crowd. It says, He'll hunt us down. You want to be hunted, you great muttonhead? No, said small Paul. I don't want that. I don't. So you'll kill him, said Lark? Yes, the huge man stamped the butt of his spear on the frozen riverbank. I will. He shouldn't hunt us. A big strong man is very useful in a mutiny, and so Chet and Lark have clearly taken advantage of Paul's pliable and acquiescent nature, using him in order to achieve their dastardly goals and their plan is revealed to be more thorough than we might have imagined. Mormont is not the only target. We need to kill all the officers, said Lark. Chet was sick of hearing it. We've been over this. The old bear dies, and Blaine from the Shadow Tower. Grubbs and Ethan as well. Their ill luck for drawing the watch. Dywin and Bannon for their tracking, and Sir Piggy for the ravens. That's all. We kill them quiet while they sleep. One scream and we're worm food, every one of us. His boils were red with rage. As much as the lives of Jorah Mormont and Good Night's Watchmen might mean to us, it's the inclusion of the defenseless Samwell on this list which really causes some anxiety. And in spite of Chet, Lark, and Paul being rather hapless as potential mutineers, their plan makes some sense. While Chet might not be the brightest spark, he does seem to be in possession of, shall we say, a certain low cunning at least. The group plans to murder the Lord Commander, the Watchers, the Trackers, and then Sam so the unit can't communicate, altogether lowering the assailant's chances of being caught. However, when Chet has to tell Paul repeatedly to strike on the third watch and not the second, we have to wonder about the conspirators he's enlisted. While the reader knows the plan is deplorable and dishonourable, Chet's motives are laid out when he thinks of attacking them sometime soon and that he meant to live. From Chet's point of view, the Night's Watch would all be dead soon anyway, and therefore he is only interested in self-preservation. The mission to fight the tens of thousands of wildlings with only 300 men is suicidal in Chet's eyes. Chet spat. How many were there? Could you tell? Many and more. Twenty? Thirty thousand? We didn't stay to count. Harma had five hundred in the van, every one a horse. The men around the fire exchanged uneasy looks. It was a rare thing to find even a dozen mounted wildlings. And five hundred. As George relays this information about the relative sizes of the armies in Chet's conversation with Kedge Wide-Eye, it's now we get confirmation the Night's Watch remain at the Fist of the First Men, where they had made camp in A Clash of Kings, and interestingly, where John found the dragonglass and horn bundled in what is almost certainly an old Night's Watch cloak. Mormont chose this spot because of its defenses and fortifications, which he augmented with spikes and pits and caltrops, which could help in a battle against the wildlings. Yet this was not enough to reassure Chet, who thought the wildlings would simply swarm over them with their vast numbers. He's further bemused by Thorin Smallwood's notion of launching a surprise attack on the wildlings. 
Three hundred against thirty thousand. Chet called that rank madness, and what was madder still was that Sir Malador had been persuaded, and the two of them together were on the point of persuading the old bear. So Chet feels urgency in his own plan to get away from the fist and thinks that it will be a black moon tonight. And given he has been able to manipulate the watch shifts to suit the scheme, there would never be a riper time for the mutiny. In parallel, this is exactly how Smallwood feels about his ambush of the wildlings. Chet pictures Jon Snow dead with a wildling spear up his ass. And he would no doubt be hoping that his mutiny would consign the remaining Night's Watch to the same fate, leaving his brothers leaderless and helpless in the face of the wildling advance. Chet gives up the hunt for the mystery bear and reflects on the hounds. It's been three days since he had last fed them. He laughs to himself about this, and we're told of his plan to literally unleash them during the mutiny. Tonight, before slipping off into the dark, He'd turn them loose among the horse lines after Sweet Donnell Hill and Clubfoot Carl cut the tethers. They'll have snarling hounds and panicked horses all over the fist, running through fires, jumping the ring wall, and trampling down tents. With all the confusion, it might be hours before anyone noticed that 14 brothers were missing. So a strategy that is strangely reminiscent of Rob Stark's plan at Oxcross suggesting that Chet, or one of his co-conspirators, is actually reasonably intelligent. Speaking of which, we learn that a party of 14 black brothers are part of the mutiny, and now we get more details on the scheme. Lark wanted twice the number, and once again we see Chet mock his allies, calling Lark Fishbreath, a reference to his hailing from the islands of the Three Sisters north of the Vale. Chet overruled Lark's notion, thinking that inviting more men into the fold could backfire as more accomplices means more chance the plan would leak and the secrets spill. He wants to contain the information whilst having enough men to carry out the mutiny, 14 men being the optimum number by his estimation. We next learned that Chet had recruited most of the men himself, so we can be sure that he was the mastermind of the scheme. It says, the plan was Chet's. He was the clever one. It was he who'd roped in Small Paul, a slow man, but the strongest on the wall, apparently once having broke a wildling's back with a hug. Dirk was involved as well, named for his favourite weapon. There's also a grey man named Softfoot who boasts of raping a hundred women in his youth without them realising he was there until it was too late. Surely the origin of his moniker Softfoot. But the idea was Chet's and not one to forget a slight. He again thinks of the time Sam and John wronged him. He fantasises how he will murder Samwell tonight, wanting to whisper, quote, Give my love to Lord Snow right in his ear before he sliced Sir Piggy's throat open to let the blood come bubbling out through all those layers of suet. Although nullifying the ravens seems like a logical part of the plan, a shiver goes down our spines as we sense how much pleasure Chet will get out of killing, quote, Sir Piggy to conclude his personal vendetta. When he thinks... One touch of the knife and that craven would piss his pants and start blubbering for his life. It takes us back to A Game of Thrones, where he had joked about Sam soiling his small clothes. 
This is the second time where Chet has thought about fear making Sam foul or wet himself, and this will become an important aspect of fully understanding the chapter. After he opened his throat, he'd open the cages and shoo the birds away so no messages reached the wall. Softfoot and Small Paul would kill the old bear, Dirk would do Blaine, and Lark and his cousins would silence Bannon and old Dywin to keep them from sniffing after their trail. They'd been cashing food for a fortnight, and Sweet Donnell and Clubfoot Carl would have the horses ready. With Mormont dead, command would pass to Sir Otten Withers, an old Dunman, and failing. He'll be running for the wall before sundown, and he won't waste no men sending them after us neither. So here we get confirmation that Chet has in fact pulled together a decent plan. Grubbs and Ethan, who had drawn the watch, will be initial targets. Softfoot and Smallpool will combine to kill Lord Commander Mormont, the strong man being overseen by a stealthy man, just in case the former forgets to do Chet's bidding. Dirk would use his Dirk on Blaine, the high-ranking officer and leader of the Shadow Tower. Lark and his cousins, one of whom is named Rolly of Sisterton, would kill Bannon and Dywin, skilled rangers with the ability to track the deserting mutineers, while Sweet Donnell and Clubfoot Carl would ready the horses for the getaway. Remember that Chet would also be releasing the hungry hounds to go wild and attack and scare off the other horses to be released by Donnell and Carl. The result of all of this, Chet hopes, is that the elderly Sir Ottin Withers would assume the command of the remaining Night's Watch following Mormont's death and the ensuing chaos the mutineers left behind. Withers would likely retreat to the wall and leave the murderous deserters to flee without interference. The plan is ambitious and well considered in its ambition to set the group free but short-sighted in the fact north of the wall is a rather unforgiving landscape to hide amidst or travel through. And remember that it's a firm death sentence for anyone taking their leave from the watch, a fact known to the reader since Garrett's beheading in the first chapter of the series. So where would this gang ultimately head to? Lark hopes to build a boat and head back to his native sisters with his cousins, which sounds to us like a disaster waiting to happen. Even if they did build a seaworthy boat, to truly outrun the Night's Watch, one must leave the Seven Kingdoms. We could hardly see Lord Sunderland or Burrell welcoming this crew back with open arms, and regardless, Chat likely wouldn't fit in with this seafaring lifestyle. Although Lapan seems to have the right idea. Hailing from Tyrosh, he would make his way home to where he claimed... Men didn't lose their hands for a bit of honest thievery, nor get sent off to freeze their life away for being found in bed with some knight's wife. Chek considers sailing off with the Tyroshi, who he insults in his mind on account of Olo's girly tongue, but imagines he'd find life difficult there without the language and with no skills or trade. It's now we get flashbacks to Chet's life as a leechman's son, as we've highlighted previously, and this factor haunts him again, just as it did in the situation with John, Sam and Eamon. And so, instead of the sisters or Tyrosh, Chet forms a different plan. He'd like the look of Craster's Keep himself, 
Craster lived high as a lord there, so why shouldn't he do the same? That would be a laugh. Chet the leechman's son, a lord with a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. But why stop at lord? Maybe he should be a king. Mance Raider started out a crow. I could be a king, same as him. And have me some wives. Craster had nineteen, not even counting the young ones, the daughters he hadn't gotten around to bedding yet. Half them wives are as old and ugly as Craster, but that didn't matter. The old ones Chet could put to work, cooking and cleaning for him, pulling carrots and slopping pigs, while the young ones warmed his bed and bore his children. Craster wouldn't object, not one small Paul gave him a hug. So the climax of Chet's master plan is to use Small Paul as the muscle to overthrow Craster and take over his keep. He's already planning which of Craster's wives will become his personal servants and which ones he'll take to his bed. It's a truly revolting plan. Rather than learning a trade or living quietly, he plans to become the new Craster and continue the culture of incest and rape, glamorizing the lifestyle he calls a laugh as an almost noble one that could lead to him becoming a king. This is the height of Chet's personal ambitions, and by now, we should be truly disgusted by him, if we weren't already. And next we hear of the reason he was condemned to a life with the Night's Watch, his cold-blooded murder of Bassa, and halfway through Chet's prologue, he appears unredeemable as a character. A huge departure for George in his prologue treatments thus far. He reflects on his sweet murder and thinks that Craster knows how to treat women. It's hard to imagine what he has in store for Craster's wives. But in reality, the fact that Chet believes he could live at Craster's indefinitely and take over from the old man quite seamlessly is pretty naive. How long would it take for the Night's Watch to discover the situation and take Chet's head for his crimes? Even after the chaos of a mutiny, probably not too long, we would hope. And it's worth noting that in the chapter so far, we've seen a lot of the past, his backstory and how the mutiny was concocted, and we've seen the future, what Chet's plans are during and after the mutiny, but still very little has actually happened in the present. It amazes us how George can keep shifting the timeline and yet still have us hooked. Chet does have certain reservations about the mutiny, and we see him try to reassure himself. It would work, he promised himself for the hundredth time. He even temporarily considers modifying the plan. If he murdered Sir Ottin and Malador Lock too, then Thorin Smallwood would receive the command and attack the wildlings, resulting in the deaths of the entire Night's Watch contingent, and therefore Castle Black would assume the deserters perished in that battle. He climbs down from that idea, thinking that the key for the mutiny is a clean escape. Small Paul interrupts Chet's thought process by showing some concern for Mormont's raven. What about the bird, he asks. The big man is at once afraid the bird will be a talking witness of Mormont's murder and concerned for the welfare of the bird itself. He wants to keep the bird as a pet, and seeing Paul's distress, Chet allows it. It's now that Paul really begins to resemble another character in literature. It's been noted by the fandom, and we agree, that Small Paul is likely to have been influenced by the character of Lenny Small from John Steinbeck's classic Of Mice and Men. 
Both men are feeble-minded, huge in stature, and ultimately soft of heart. They're both foils for smaller men, and neither knows the power of their own strength. When Paul begins to continuously pester Chet about the bird, it's reminiscent of Lenny's softness and persistent fondness towards rabbits. Given that both men have the name Small used in irony, we think the influence is plain here. And soon Chet, Lark, and Paul approach the fist of the first men, where fiery beacons illuminate the gloomy day. A dozen men are practicing archery, and Lark says, Look, a pig with a bow. For the umpteenth time, Chet recalls when Sir Piggy stole his job, one which Clydus had made even easier by doing most of the work, never contemplating whether this was a factor in Eamon's eventual choice. It says, Just the sight of Samuel Tarly filled Chet with anger. Thinks he can just walk in and shove me out on account of being high-born and knowing how to read. Might be I ask him to read my knife before I open his throat with it. So, as we head to the climax of the chapter, George wants us to fear for a character whom we love. There's tension and conflict ahead, all hinging on our protective instincts towards Sam Tarley. When Sam misses his aim, Chet laughs obnoxiously, a snort of sweet disgust. Gren shows patience with Sam, tutoring him on how to shoot, and stood together with the comical Ed Tollett, the scene emanates true friendship, in polar opposition to the three would-be mutineers. Eventually, Sam perseveres and hits his target. Gren had been as patient with Sam as John had been, and once again, it paid off. But Sam's beaming smile soon dies as Chet enters the scene. You hit a tree, Chet said. Let's see how you shoot when it's Mance Raiders, lads. They won't stand there with their arms out and their leaves rustling. Oh no, they'll come right at you, screaming in your face. And I bet you'll piss those breeches. And this is the third time the chat has insinuated Sam will lose control of his bodily functions. The second time in this chapter. But here, Ed is on hand to support the defenseless Sam, mocking Chet by saying his brains must have leaked out of his skull. The spiteful young man sulks away, consoling himself that at least tonight he'd get to slit Sir Piggy's throat and wishes he could kill Tollet as well. Chet's rendezvous with Mormont shows us how reasonable the Lord Commander really is. Mormont is disappointed with the lack of meat, but doesn't chastise or punish Chet. Jules certainly doesn't deserve any of what Chet has in store for him, as the steward imagines this is the final time he'll bow to his chief. The bear tracks are mentioned, and then Chet thinks that it was growing even colder. Here the two clues from the first paragraph of the chapter are recycled, clues that remind us that something could be amiss in the surrounding forests of the fist. Animal tracks that the dogs won't follow, and a stabbing cold in the place where John found dragonglass weapons. What could it all mean? As the sun sets and evening draws in, Lark remarks that if small Paul's raven eats meat, it could feast on the big man himself, but Chet has other ideas, deciding that he'd rather the raven eat Lark, as Small Paul, the man earmarked to kill Craster for him, is of more use than Lark. This again shows how Chet evaluates his friendships. 
He favors only those who he can use for his own gain, and so, ultimately, Lark could be a disposable asset. It's no wonder he's continually angry when he's turned his back on the warmth of true companionship. Dywin was holding forth at the cook fire as Chet got his heel of hard bread and a bowl of bean and bacon soup from Hake the cook. The wood's too silent, the old forester was saying. No frogs near that river, no owls in the dark. I never heard no deader wood than this. Them teeth of yours sound pretty dead, said Hake. Dywin clacked his wooden teeth. No wolves, neither. There was, before, but no more. Where'd they go, you figure? Someplace warm, said Chet. Chet's conversation with Dywin provides yet more clues about what lies ahead for the Night's Watch. The woods being described as silent and, quote, dead is most disconcerting, recalling other silent and dead things we've encountered in a Night's Watch prologue. As readers, we feel a sense of dread, but Chet doesn't think too hard on the anomaly, instead parking himself by the fire to assess his accomplices in the build-up to their mutiny. Two more of his own gang are introduced, Sawood and Maslin, and their nervous demeanour is worrying Chet. Sawood is a forester whose name comes from his epic snoring abilities rather than his tree felling, and he looks restless. Maslin is worse, sweating, not eating and appearing sick. This must weigh very heavy on Chet. After all, it would take just one slip for the whole group to be found out. It's clear that, despite a 14-man plan, Chet is not only the planner, but the manager and overseer of the entire escapade. Chet really is the rottenest of the rotten eggs in the camp, and without him, this conspiracy would simply not be happening. A Mormont calls an impromptu meeting at the fire, shouting, Assemble! Then the Lord Commander gives a rousing speech detailing a plan to attack the Wildling procession, as Thorin Smallwood had suggested. Remembering that this is exactly what Chet wanted to happen, an unsuccessful battle with the wildlings would increase the conspirators' chance of escaping. As he watches his companions give battle cheers along with the other Night's Watch, it's clear this pivot by Mormont will not affect Chet's schemes. Die, says Mormont's raven. Clever bird, thinks Chet. He then takes leave to get some rest before his big moment. He could see Bess's face floating before him. It wasn't the knife I wanted to put in you, he wanted to tell her. I picked you flowers, wild roses and tansy and golden cups. It took me all morning. His heart was thumping like a drum, so loud he feared it might wake the camp. Ice caked his beard all around his mouth. Where did that come from, with Bessa? Whenever he thought of her before, it had only been to remember the way she looked, dying. What was wrong with him? He could hardly breathe. Had he gone to sleep? He got to his knees, and something wet and cold touched his nose. Chet looked up. Snow was falling. When Bessa appears to Chet, he wonders why it is he's seeing her face now rather than her dying look. We always look for pathos in our character studies. With Chet, that's a difficult task. Here, however... We get just a tiny drop of that pathos as our leechman's son lies cold and delirious, 
Chet, for the first time, is remembering Besser as a person, one whom he wishes he could explain himself to. Although he doesn't exactly seem sorry, and it's not enough to elicit sympathy from the reader, this reflective moment indicates a minute change in Chet. And the reason for that change, unbeknownst to him, is that he's slowly freezing and is therefore at his most tranquil. There's ice in his beard and he's struggling to breathe. In A Dance with Dragons, we get this from Tormund about the others. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? In the same book, John comments, men say that freezing to death is almost peaceful, and so it seems that Chet was suffering the same deathly cold brought by the others, peacefully freezing as those wildlings in the village Will had spotted back in A Game of Thrones seemed to have done. Chet's mind must have been softening while he nodded off. When he looks up to see falling snow, he begins to cry, the tears freezing to his cheeks. At that moment, he realizes that his carefully laid plan has fallen apart in an instant. The colluders will not be able to find their vital food caches under the snow or the game trail they were planning to follow. They'll leave obvious tracks wherever they flee to and risk their mounts hurting themselves on snowy terrain. Chet thinks, we're done he realized, done before we began. We're lost. There'd be no lord's life for the leechman's son, no keep to call his own, no wives, nor crowns, only a wildling's sword in his belly, and then an unmarked grave. The snow's taken it all from me, the bloody snow. Snow had ruined him once before, snow and his pet pig. In an instant, Chet's plans for the future are scuttled because of snow, which in turn reminds him once again of Jon Snow and Sam. His immediate response is to try and murder Samwell out of pure spite, just to quench his rage. And just as the tension reaches fever pitch, as he ventures into the tents to do away with Sir Piggy, ooh. The horn of the Night's Watch stops him in his tracks. The noise awakens the animals, and then Samwell himself, before Chet realizes that half the camp is now awake. He reaches for his dagger hilt, and then... A louder and longer horn blast. Two means wildlings, Chet tells the dozy Samwell, delighting in telling Sam he'll soon be at the end of a wildling axe. Until... For the first time in the saga... The Night's Watch blow three blasts upon their horns. They never blow three, not for hundreds and thousands of years. Three means... others. Chet made a sound that was half a laugh and half a sob, and suddenly his small clothes were wet, and he could feel the piss running down his leg, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. This passage concludes the chapter, and now all those clues about the silent forest, the unnatural cold, and the ancient dragonglass cache make sense. The others were in that forest, and now they're attacking. 
For the moment, the mystery of the untrackable bear is not completely resolved, and that's something we will cover in the next segment. The last line sees Chet wetting himself in front of Sam, and so, in lieu of seeing Chet's death directly, George chooses a poetic ending, given the three times we've noted Chet mocking cowardly Sam while insinuating that the Lordling would lose control of his bodily functions in the face of fear. Chet, at this point, cuts a rather pathetic figure, and we're reminded that there's a much greater threat out there than Chet and people like him, and that Westeros is too busy squabbling to provide the necessary defense. The Night's Watch should be solid in unity at this point, but in reality, they're on the verge of murdering one another. Chet is the microcosm of the macrocosm. Westeros is at war with itself, while the army of the dead rises. Ultimately, Chet's personal story is one layered upon themes of poverty, class, societal disadvantage, and the anger of disaffected youth. We might look at modern society and identify the Chets of our own world, angry young men who commit unspeakable crimes. Should we have sympathy for them? This is the type of difficult question that George really enjoys. And whatever your answer, perhaps we should at least try to understand them. Chet's limitless inner rage made him a very different kind of point of view character to study, which was interesting in a single chapter, but most of us will be glad to be outside of his seething brain again. However, being left on a cliffhanger, and with the knowledge that death is not necessarily the end in this world, we're not quite done with good old Chet just yet. In our next segment, we'll follow the events that followed Chet's prologue at the Fist of the First Men before moving on to their aftermath and the final curtain call for Chet of Hagsmire. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thank you to Hortense of Ashai, Scotty, Yunav, Hasaiko, Amber, Infanderis, the Unspeakable Terror, Sammy, Tim, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Eileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, John H, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, J.M., Oxheart, Boss, Arrowdo, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Blythe Spirit, the Sothorian, Lady of the Frostfangs, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. The hill jutted above the dense tangle of forest, rising solitary and sudden, its windswept heights visible from miles off. The wildlings called it the Fist of the First Men, Rangers said. 
The way up was steep and stony, the summit crowned by a chest-high wall of tumbled rocks. They had to circle some distance west before they found a gap large enough to admit the horses. The views atop the hill were bracing, yet it was the ring wall that drew John's eye, the weathered gray stones with their white patches of lichen, their beards of green moss. It was said that the fist had been a ring fort of the first men in the Dawn Age. We first see the ancient ring fort known as the Fist of the First Men in John 4 in A Clash of Kings, when Mormont's Great Ranging arrives there seeking a defensible location to make camp while waiting for Corin Halfand and the men from the Shadow Tower to join them. According to rangers who'd heard it from wildlings, the place had been built by First Men in the Dawn Age. Its modern name, Fist of the First Men, is based upon both its origin and its appearance, a conical hill with precipitous sides, quote, punching up through earth and wood, its bare brown slopes knuckled with stone. Of its original purpose, we know nothing for certain, but we can certainly guess. Based on its period of origin, commonly held to be the Dawn Age, we can surmise the original ring fort was built at a time when the first men, spreading across Westeros from Essos, were still at war with the original inhabitants of the continent, the Children of the Forest, and as we'll see, it was uniquely located to give its defenders an advantage over their opponents. Originating in the Dawn Age makes this fort probably similar in age to Moat Kaelin, the only other Dawn Age fortification specifically noted in the series thus far. An original purpose aside, we can't rule out the possibility that this area was still fortified when the Long Night descended upon Westeros many centuries after the First Men made peace with the children. In which case, it's possible that the events we'll see unfold here are a repetition of an ancient struggle playing out once more on the pages of history. And typical of George's characterization of the First Men as an advancing Bronze Age culture, in real life we find ring forts or hill forts used widely in Northern Europe during the Late Bronze Age through the Early Middle Ages. Primarily a defensive feature, these forts would have evolved from simple ditch and bank fortifications built on defensible ground and eventually taken on the characteristics of what we know today as medieval Mott and Bailey castles. That the Fist of the First Men bears the remnants of a stone ring wall probably indicates that it was an important outpost, permanently garrisoned. While outposts of this sort in real life might often come in strategic groups, think of the forts strung along George's inspiration for the Wall of Westeros, Hadrian's Wall of Britain. We don't know enough of the lay of the land in the far north to speculate on the presence of other forts, though if you wanted to speculate that Craster's Keep might have originated as a similar fortification, you'd be in good company, but we digress. What we do know about the Fist is that it is marvellously situated to observe the surrounding countryside for miles around. To the west, one looks across the Milkwater, the major river draining the Frostfangs. As Lord Commander Mormont points out, the Valley of the Milkwater is the best route for a group of any size that wishes to descend from the heights of the Frostfangs. For smaller groups, the Skirling Pass and Giant Stair are located more or less directly across from the Fist. 
the only other land route from the west into the continent of Westeros, would involve crossing the Milkwater Gorge at the modern location of the Shadow Tower, an area we can be sure the First Men would have fortified as well. With its sprawling views to the west, north and northeast, this location is possibly the best suited in the entire far north for observing any movement from those directions. As Jon Snow would observe, they ought to be safe here. The hill offered commanding views and the slopes were precipitous to the north and west and only slightly more gentle to the east. A word about the hillside itself is in order. It's noted to be bare and treeless, its heights windswept. Whether this is a natural feature, or the trees were cleared away by the original builders to remove potential cover for their enemy, who were adept at hiding in the forest, we cannot say for sure, but we can speculate that the lack of trees in general, and weirwood trees specifically, is a strong indicator that the first men cleared it intentionally, as it's noted that their penchant for cutting down trees, specifically weirwoods, was one of the causes of their war with the children of the forest. At any rate, being treeless does make the defence of the fort at the top of the hill much easier. With a clear view of any approaching threat and the high ground in any attack, with attackers having to fight uphill with no cover against defenders protected by deep slopes and strong stone walls, this is as strong a fortification as any the first men could have imagined and as strategically located as could have been wished. It's no surprise that on achieving the summit, Jor Mormont declared, This is good ground. We could scarce hope for better. But speaking of enemies traveling undercover, there is one potential drawback to the location, though seen from a lens of the first men advancing from the south and southeast, it may not have been too much of an issue, historically speaking. Now, though, the description tells us, to south and east, the wood went on as far as John could see, a vast tangle of root and limb painted in a thousand shades of green, with here and there a patch of red where a weirwood shouldered through the pines and sentinels, or a blush of yellow where some broadleaves had begun to turn. When the wind blew, he could hear the creak and groan of branches older than he was. A thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment, the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. Ghost was not like to be alone down there, he thought. Anything could be moving under that sea, creeping toward the ring fort through the dark of the wood, concealed beneath those trees. Anything. How would they ever know? So a beautiful description of an endless wood characterised as a sea, quote, eternal and unknowable. It puts us in mind of Patchface's bizarre rhymes about all the things that happen under the sea, especially his declaration in A Dance with Dragons, we will march into the sea and out again. When John discusses the proposed ranging through the haunted forest to Hardhome with Queen Selyse, food for thought, but once again we digress. As A Clash of King progresses, we see the formation of Mormont's plan to take on the enormous wildling host that both Craster and his scouts tell him is massing in the Frostfangs. We also see the flaws in the defenses through the eyes of Jon Snow. Trained at Winterfell by his father and the likes of Sir Roger Cassell, Jon will prove to be a keen tactician throughout his arc. Here he notes several things, one of which is that the vast forest surrounding them on three sides could be hiding anything. 
He also points out the lack of water inside the defenses, and, indirectly, the weak points of the chest-high wall that is all that remains of the original fortification. Though Mormont orders these areas ditched and staked, they will remain weak points. In addition, Mormont and John are both fully aware that anyone, anything, for miles around will see their fires atop the hill and know they are there. Though they speak in hopes that Benjamin Stark might find them, they both acknowledge the fact that what finds them could be unfriendly, and the possibility that Benjamin could have suffered the same fate as Othor and Jay for Flowers is mentioned. Before we move on to discuss what eventually befell the Night's Watch at the Fist of the First Men, there's one more note about Jon Snow. On their first night at the fortification, Ghost leads Jon to a cache of dragonglass weapons, daggers, arrowheads and spearheads, along with an old warhorn buried near the base of the hill, wrapped in what was clearly a Night's Watch cloak. How the bundle got there and what significance the horn might be is beyond our scope for the moment, but the weapons themselves will be significant, along with the fact that John distributed them among his friends and brothers. While John eventually departs with Corrin Halfhand, Thorin Smallwood, Jarman Buckwell, and eleven other brothers to form three parties of five to probe the roads out of the mountains, the Skirling Pass, Giant Stair, and the Milkwater itself, the rest of the force remains, nearly three hundred men, encamped and waiting for news on the Wildlings' movements. In Chet's POV, many weeks later, we learn that Thorin Smallwood had returned from his mission with the news that the wildlings were on the move, following the milk water out of the mountains. Smallwood believes that the van, under Harmer Dogshead, will arrive at the Fist in ten days. Rather than await their arrival at their defensible position, Jor Mormont announces a plan it is a classic wagon train attack, raid their weak points and supply lines, create confusion and scatter their defences. We ride at dawn with all our strength. We will ride north and loop around to the west. Harmer's van will be well past the fist by the time we turn. The foothills of the Frostfangs are full of narrow winding valleys made for ambush. Their line of march will stretch for many miles. We shall fall on them in several places at once and make them swear we were 3,000, not 300. Thorin Smallwood continues, We'll hit hard and be away before their horsemen can form up to face us. If they pursue, we'll lead them a merry chase, then wheel and hit again farther down the column. We'll burn their wagons, scatter their herds, and slay as many as we can, Mance Raider himself, if we find him. If they break and return to their hovels, we've won. If not, we'll harry them all the way to the wall and see to it that they leave a trail of corpses to mark their progress. It was a bold plan, though one that was as likely to see the 300 all perish as survive. But reminiscent of Leonidas and his Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, Mormont saw the value of sacrificing his own men in order to land a blow on the enemy that would give the defenders at the wall a chance to regroup and prevent Mance's army from bringing, as Smallwood said, red war to the Seven Kingdoms. But as the night grew quiet, the cold increased and it began to snow. 
As we saw in the walkthrough, from Chet's perspective, the snow destroyed any chance of his planned mutiny succeeding. Snow reminded him of Jon Snow and Samwell Tarly, in his eyes the architects of his ruin. He resolved to kill Sam at the very least, a final act of vengeance before facing what he assumed would be his own death. Of what would happen next, he had no thought, being motivated by sheer hatred at this point. And as he approached Sam, one of the far eyes that Mormont had stationed outside of the fort sounded a signal that changed everything. As the horn sounded their message, we saw Chet move from anger, returning rangers would shatter his plans for vengeance and escape, to fear and greater anger. Smallwood had got it wrong and the wildlings were upon them, further dooming him to outright terror. As he faced down a clearly terrified Sam, who nonetheless had sprung into action and was donning his mail, Chet did exactly the thing he had so often mocked Sam with. Suddenly, his small clothes were wet, and he could feel the piss running down his leg, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. The last we see of Chet for some time comes in Sam's memory of those moments, as Sam struggled to get to the raven cages to send off the messages he had been commanded to send in the event of an attack. It says, Sam had never seen so much fear on a man's face as he saw on Chet's when that third blast came moaning through the trees. When Sam asked for his help with the birds, remembering that Chet had once taken care of them himself, it says that Chet simply ran off, dagger in hand. Never guessing that dagger had been meant for him, Sam focused on his task in spite of his terror. He had written out the messages in advance, telling of an attack on the Fist of the First Men. Critically, these initial messages made no mention of the dead or of others. How could he have known? Terrified as he is, he does get two birds off, one each for Castle Black and the Shadow Tower, embodying, not for the last time in this carnival of horrors, the idea that the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Later, when Mormont calls the retreat, Sam would release the rest of the ravens in his panic forgetting to attach one of the many messages he had spent the time of the battle writing. Messages detailing every possible outcome. Messages warning of the dead and the others. As events continue to unfold, Sam does piss himself, as Chet had predicted, and more than once. The first time, he was sure, was when he saw a man in black spear a white through the belly, and the white pulled himself up the spear shaft and grabbed the man's head, twisting until blood came out his mouth, proving the near invincibility of their foe and the hopelessness of their situation. The second time was when the bear came lurching into their midst as they formed up for the retreat. Sam had heard of, and maybe seen the shadow of, a whited bear with the enemy. But the sight of it close up was beyond any horror he had experienced. It says, Dead, pale and rotting, its fur and skin all sloughed off, and half its right arm burnt a bone, yet still it came on. Only its eyes lived, bright blue, just as John said. They shone like frozen stars. And so this is the answer to the mystery from the very beginning of Chet's chapter, the reason his dogs wouldn't take the scent and refuse to follow the bear whose tracks had been found. Bugger the bear, Lark the Sisterman had said, he's not worth freezing over. Well, he certainly wasn't, 
but he was worth dying over, as Thorin Smallwood proved when he charged the beast and took its head off, just an instant before it took off his own. In the retreat, Sam's thoughts are a jumble of memory and self-recrimination. He had lost his sword, he was weak, scared and tired. He wanted to give up, thinking, I did my duty, no one can say I forswore myself. I'm fat and I'm weak and I'm craven, but I did my duty. When he lay in the snow hours later, too exhausted to go on, it was Gren and Small Paul who rescued him. The giant Paul would carry Sam through the snow, chattering all the while about ravens and Chet and Lark, details of the planned mutiny that Sam had no way of knowing about. But he carried the quote, fat boy, because he could, as far as he could. Then came the moment when the trio realized the rear guard had passed them by, that they were now alone outside the ring of torches that Mormont had ordered. Gren with his lone torch, simple-minded small Paul with an axe, and Sam armed with nothing more than the dragonglass dagger John had given him. Then the other appeared, and Sam realized they weren't alone after all. Sam's heroics in those next few moments are legendary, both in story and without. When small Paul rushes at the other with his axe, the other impales him with his icy blade. But in what must be a rare moment of miscalculation, Paul's death does not go as planned. Much like we saw when Sam watched one of his brothers spear a white, who then pulled himself up the spear shaft to twist the man's head off, Paul, impaled on the blade, reaches for the other with his hands and very nearly got there before he collapsed and his sheer weight pulled the sword from the other's hand. And in spite of his terror, Sam saw the opportunity. Gren had no weapon readily available and Sam had only the dragonglass dagger Jon Snow had given him. While holding a short and furious argument with himself, he managed to stagger forward with his eyes closed to strike out at the enemy in that brief moment he was without his weapon. And he struck home. The other melted, turned to mist, and Night's Watch and Reader alike learned the forgotten secret to destroying an ancient enemy. This is the first time we've seen an other on page since the A Game of Thrones prologue. Nearly two and a half years have passed in story, and over 1,300 pages for the reader. While the appearance and its death actually occur in Samwell's first POV chapter, in large part Sam's chapter is supported by Chet's prologue. Just as Chet picks up where Will left off in advancing the story of the others and what's going on north of the wall, Sam Wan picks up where Chet left off in relating the events of the fight at the Fist of the First Men, culminating with the appearance of the other, just as Will's chapter did. Chet's POV directly sets up Sam's heroics at that moment. Chet devotes a lot of mental energy to his hatred for Sam, the boy who stole his position with Maester Eamon. His disdain for the fat coward is unequivocal, and his behavior towards him is classic schoolyard bully. But like so many bullies, when the chips are down, we see that he's a coward himself. In fact, to a great extent, his feelings about Sam represent a projection of his own fears, of not being good enough, of failure, of being frightened. Both young men would have given anything to have been left behind in Eamon's comfortable quarters at Castle Black. 
but Sam's essential goodness leads to his heroism, while Chet's flaws lead to self-aggrandizing bullying and mercenary cowardice. It's probably no accident that Sam's chapter both begins and ends with Sam forcing himself to go on in spite of his terrible fear. In the opening, we get sobbing. Sam took another step. This is the last one, the very last. I can't go on. I can't. But his feet moved again. One and then the other. They took a step and then another. And then at the end, he's still going. We get grimacing. He took a step. I'll try hard. And then another. And by contrast, Chet's chapter ends with him pissing himself. Like we said, the very thing he had jeeringly assured Sam that he would do when faced with danger. Sam, in fact, did. But that's not the point. Sam recalls that the last time he saw Chet, the other steward had turned and run off. And this wasn't altruistic running towards danger or a task that had to be done, as we see so many of the Night's Watchmen doing. Chet ran away, and the cost would be the very life he was trying to save. Next time we see his face, he'll be a blue-eyed revenant facing his second and final death. Come one, come all, to partake in the Great Riverlands Tours. Journey with our experienced guides to one of the centerpieces of the Seven Kingdoms as we set forth into the heartlands of Hagsmire, where one can enjoy the green pools and endless bogs that surround you. Trapes through boggy marshland belonging to the wonderful and welcoming Frey family. May your mount watch their step upon the roads. Finally, join in the activity of the day as we take you leeching in the mire. Stripped down to our leather clouts, we'll go wading in the murky waters. When you climb out, you'll be covered from nipple to ankle. At twelve a penny, your fortune may be made. Just be careful not to anger the charming locals by harming these prized leeches, or they may just beat you bloody. Great Riverlands Tours of Hagsmire where blood-sucking leeches will cover you in glory. Take what you're given and be thankful. Would you sooner be out in the storm, eating snow? We'll be there soon enough. Clubfoot Carl did not flinch from the old bear's wrath. I'd sooner eat what Craster's hiding, my lord. Craster narrowed his eyes. I gave you crows enough. I got me women to feed. By Samwell II of A Storm of Swords, Sam Gren and a number of other men of the Watch have arrived at Craster's. We're immediately reminded of Sam's fearfulness. It says, Up in the loft a woman was giving birth noisily, while below a man lay dying by the fire. Samwell Tarly could not say which frightened him more. Soon we see Craster begrudging the request for food from the hungry Black Brothers. I fed you what I could, but you crows are always hungry. I'm a godly man, else I would have chased you off. You think I need the likes of him dying on my floor? You think I need all your mouths, little man? The wildling spat. Crows. When did a black bird ever bring good to a man's hall, I ask you? Never. Never. So this tension evidence as the Night's Watch attempt to regroup and find some strength. They've all undergone significant trauma and now require sustenance. 
Craster is in no rush to give away his food, which, from his point of view, he requires for himself and his wives for the long winter ahead. Clubfoot Carl, one of Chet's would-be mutineers, suspects there is a secret larder that Craster is keeping hidden, and soon other men begin to believe him. Not only is the hard and mean-looking Craster refusing to meet the men's wishes, but he also displays his temper towards Gilly as she gives birth. Give her a rag to bite down on, or I'll come up there and give her a taste of my hand, he shouts. It becomes clear that some of the Black Brothers have designs on more than just Craster's food, as we learn that Craster had beaten one of his wives that Carl and Garth of Greenaway had wanted for themselves. In response, we get this. His roof, his rule, the ranger Ronald Harclay had reminded them. Craster's a friend to the watch. So the Night's Watch are split between those more honourable members who are grateful for whatever Craster gives them. He is offering a roof and warmth and at least some food. In keeping with the alliance the Watch has formed with the man over the years that sees them use his keep as a sort of outpost. However, other characters perceive Craster is hoarding an abundance both of food and of women, and in their desperate state show their discontent. This divide forms the basis for tensions that will soon overflow. One must also be aware of guest right, the tradition committing to peace once food has been offered under a host roof, which Craster originally offered the Night's Watchman. And as the Night's Watch contingent gathers for its meal under Craster's roof, it says, that was when the trouble started. Clubfoot Carl calls Craster's wives stupid for serving only two loaves of bread, and Mormont tells him to be thankful. Carl's reaction is telling. He does not flinch and says, I'd sooner eat what Craster's hiding. Craster points out that he's got women to feed, and Dirk, another of Chet's accomplices, presses him on the whereabouts of his secret larder. Carl calls him a niggardly liar, and at this point, we should recall that Dirk and Carl were willing to kill Blaine and cut horse tethers at the fist, respectively, and so perhaps what happens next shouldn't be too much of a surprise. The complaints about the food grow ever louder until Mormont orders silence. Craster arms himself with the axe the Lord Commander had previously gifted him as the situation escalates into a showdown. Craster is called a bastard, which is no more than all men know, according to Carl, on account of the old man's Night's Watch stroke wildling heritage. And then Craster attacks Carl. In the midst of the chaos, it's Dirk who opens Craster's throat. Mormont stands over the dead body of his ally, and then we get this passage. The gods will curse us, he cried. There is no crime so foul as for a guest to bring murder into a man's hall. By all the laws of the hearth, we... There are no laws beyond the wall, old man. Remember, Dirk grabbed one of Craster's wives by the arm and shoved the point of his bloody Dirk up under her chin. Show us where he keeps the food, or you'll get the same as he did, woman. Unhand her, Mormont took a step. I'll have your head for this, you. Garth of Greenaway blocked his path, and Olo Lophand yanked him back. They both had blades in their hand. Hold your tongue, Olo warned. Instead, the Lord Commander grabbed for his dagger. Olo had only one hand, but that was quick. 
He twisted free of the old man's grasp, shoved the knife into Mormont's belly and yanked it out again, all red. And then the world went mad. The ensuing melee breaks out with Black Brother killing Black Brother and some of the mutinous men raping Craster's helpless wives. At last we have our mutiny. And in the context of today's episode, it's interesting to consider how this all began as a plan inside Chet's head. As we said, Clubfoot Carl, Dirk, and Ala Lopand, chief instigators here, were all part of Chet's conspiracy at the Fist, a plan which echoed right through to this mutiny at Craster's. In the appendix of A Feast for Crows, we learn that those three, plus Monty, who lost his horse to the other Sam killed, Garth of Greenaway, Grubbs, Alan of Rosby, Orphan Oss, and Muttering Bill then continue to reside at Craster's, as Chet himself had once planned to do. But the men might have met their match, though, when in A Dance with Dragons, the enigmatic Cold Hands visits the keep and murders some of the mutineers. Olo Lophand is the only one confirmed to have met his end, given we see a one-handed corpse, so we are left to wonder who else Cold Hands disposed of. Dirk and Carl are unaccounted for and could be two of the five killed by Cold Hands. Sawwood is never seen again after the fight at the Fist, and Sam recalls that Rowley of Sisterton, one of Lark's cousins, died when he broke his neck chasing Craster's wives. Why Lark and his cousins were at the wall, presumably for crimes committed together, is a mystery. However, in the mystery night, we get this small remark about their home. Sisterton was the most notorious smuggler's den in all of Westeros. So combined with the cousins' plan to run from the original mutiny and build their own boat, a skill one could attribute to smugglers... And we can take an educated guess that Lark, Rowley and co. were caught smuggling together and thus sent to the wall. And finally, there's Sweet Donald Hill, one of the original plotters tasked with freeing the horses, who was at Craster's, but fled back to Castle Black rather than stay there, presumably realizing what a short-sighted plan this mutiny was. In A Dance with Dragons, we see Donal alive and well, shooting arrows into Rattleshirt, glamoured as Mance, on Lord Commander Jon Snow's orders, his dark secret seemingly remaining in the past. Keep your eye out for Donal, who claims to be a Lannister bastard, in the Winds of Winter. Altogether, the mutiny at Craster's was the moment bad men outnumbered the good in the Night's Watch. Although the men were understandably desperate, it's difficult to view what happened as anything other than an act of opportunism rather than pure self-preservation, with the dastardly men no doubt subjecting Craster's wives to yet more suffering in the aftermath. The breaking of guest right, as it was with the Red Wedding, signifies the decay of custom and law that had once provided vital diplomatic channels. With the murder of Lord Commander Jor Mormont, the Night's Watch has now hit rock bottom, although it's not long before another Lord Commander, Jon Snow, receives the sharp end of the blade from his own men too. Analysing the sequence as we have today, many of the themes carried by these plot lines owe a lot to the moment that Chet opened that door to Jon Snow in Aemon's quarters in A Game of Thrones. 
For a minor character with a short prologue, Chet certainly managed to leave his mark on the story in the far north. And so Samwell flees the chaos of Craster's mutiny with Gilly and her newborn son, and they find themselves in a village Sam thinks is White Tree. He says a desperate prayer to the Weirwood and the old gods. A fire burns out as they take refuge, and then a familiar figure enters their hall. It's small Paul, reanimated. Paul's hands were coal, his face milk, his eyes shone a bitter blue. Hoarfrost whitened his beard, and on one shoulder hunched a raven, pecking at his cheek, eating the dead white flesh. Sam's bladder let go, and he felt the warmth running down his legs. So the theme of Sam losing control of himself continues, but he is now a different sort of coward, a brave coward if you will, and so we can sense he's not going to roll over and let himself, Gilly, and the baby meet the same fate as Small Paul without a struggle. After considering his dagger, he says, Small Paul, do you know me? I'm Sam, Fat Sam, Sam the Scared. You saved me in the woods. You carried me when I couldn't walk another step. No one else could have done that, but you did. Sam backed away, knife in his hand, snivelling. I am such a coward. Don't hurt us, Paul, please. Why would you want to hurt us? Sam then plunges the dragonglass dagger into Paul's back, but given the difference between white walkers and their whites, nothing happens. After the pair fight and struggle, Sam finally remembers the embers from the fire, grabs a smoldering log, and forces it down small, un-Paul's throat, and the white's face bursts into flame. Given Paul's size and the dread of the moment, this is no mean feat by Sam. Again, the coward shows us his heroism by saving the day. But the threat is not over. A crowd of clumsy whites gather around Gilly. It says, Sam saw Lark the Sisterman, Softfoot, Riles. The wen on Chet's neck was black, his boils covered with a thin film of ice. And that one looked like Hake, although it was hard to know for certain with half his head missing. They had torn the poor Garen apart and were pulling out her entrails with dripping red hands. Pale steam rose from her belly. So three of these whites had been a part of the original mutiny plan, with mastermind Chet returning from death, still disfigured by his boils and a blackened wen, to haunt Samwell once again. The scene is one of true horror, their transformation into undead slaves of the others, a fate worse than death. And Sam will soon join them, unless he can escape. And then something wholly unexpected happens. Remembering Sam's earlier prayer to the Weirwood, we get this. Ravens! They were in the Weirwood, hundreds of them, thousands, perched on the bone-white branches, peering between the leaves. He saw their beaks open as they screamed, saw them spread their black wings, shrieking, flapping. They descended on the whites in angry clouds. They swarmed round Chet's face and pecked at his blue eyes, then covered the sisterman like flies. They plucked gobbets from inside Hake's shattered head. There were so many that when Sam looked up, he could not see the moon. Go, said the bird on his shoulder. Go, go, go. 
the Ravens attack the Whites, allowing Sam, Gilly, and the child to make their escape. They're soon picked up by cold hands and delivered to the wall, leaving the reader to wonder who was behind these events. Although Sam was fortunate here, he's acted bravely since the fight at the Fist, and so the reader feels that he's earned this escape. Remembering that ravens eat flesh, Chet's undead eyes are poked out and Lark is swarmed upon, and given this is the last time we hear of them, we can perhaps assume that both whites are now dead for good. In A Dance with Dragons, we learn that Bloodraven, a missing and former Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, is Bran's Three-Eyed Raven, a fact which gets further confirmation in the appendix, and also that Cold Hands attacked and killed at least some of the mutineers at Craster's. It's fitting then that Bloodraven and his monster seem to be continuing the work of the Night's Watch, harnessing the power of the Weirnet and Raven skin changing to do so. And in the end, there was no escape from Night's Watch justice for poor Chet, as he met his second death as a reanimated white. Thanks so much for joining us today for this look at the Chet prologue from A Storm of Swords. This concludes our series on the prologues of A Song of Ice and Fire. And as a reminder, the episode on the Varamir chapter is, for the time being, a patron exclusive. So head on over to patreon.com slash radioesteros to check out how you can gain access to that. We'll be back soon with the first installment of our new Winds of Winter primer series. And as usual, we want to end today by giving credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for prologues and dark characters, and to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we end by thanking our patrons from the Castle Steel level. We couldn't do this without you guys, and so heartfelt thanks to CERN, Peter Pebble, Sir Swift, Biloba, Shari, Direwolf, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Amber, History of Westeros, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Catherine, Tree Girl, Chris, Convenience or Death, David, Warren Halfhand, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arion, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt L., Michael M., Tanner, Iden, Dimitri B., Spend Trails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Oakenfist, Mary, Sam, Eric, Maddie and Jessica, Craig, Jacob, Crimson Kate, That Shiny Bastard, Alex, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Engvild, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Christian, Charitable Rereadings, Richard, Camille, Nessie the Questing Beast, Virginie, Rachel, Eric, Harry Krishna, Sir Galahoo of what? Matthew, Dutch Defender of the Berm, PJ, Sin Bobby Joe, Clay, Monero Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Ezra, Joseph, Kevin, Dennis, Judson, Emily of the Erie, Jeffrey, Terry, Maria, Ryan, and Matthew. Thanks so much, everyone. We will be back soon with another episode of Radio Westeros. See you then. Bye for now. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 